Welcome to episode 40 of the Liberty Dad podcast, where we prepare for tomorrow's political conversation by how we engage today. If you are new to the show, Liberty represents the message of all your freedom all the time. And Dad represents the delivery, recognizing that tomorrow's conversation with my son is determined by how I engage with him today, and then applying that to those around me. I'm your host, DL, and this episode is Improving Race Relations, where I'll answer the question, what do we do about racism? This episode is part four of my series on race-related matters. Don't worry if you didn't see the other three, as each one is independent of the others. I make references to past episodes, and to get the fullest context, I do recommend that you watch them all. However, for now, let's not waste any more time, and let's dive right in. Last week, I gave my review of Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. During that episode, I played a few excerpts from her 2020 interview with The Guardian, where she speaks briefly about this idea of white fragility. During that interview, she answers the question, what do we do about racism? I want to take a moment to listen to her answer. The number one question I'm asked is, what do we do? And before I answer that, I want to offer a couple of challenges to that question because I find it a very problematic question. So the first thing is to think long and deep about what it took for you to ask that question. How in 2020, your question could be, what do I do about racism? How you have managed not to know and write down how you have managed to be a full functioning adult in 2020 and not know what to do about racism. And everything you write down will be your map and nothing you write down will be easy to address, but everything on it can be addressed. And then get to work. It's like saying, I want to be in shape tomorrow. You won't be in shape tomorrow. And to get in shape will be a multi-part process. After you've made that list, one of the next things I would ask you to do is to take Dr. Eddie Moore's 21-day challenge and read Layla Said's book, Me and White Supremacy Workbook. Both of those are active processes that will put you on the path. During that last episode, I criticized D'Angelo for what I believe is a very condescending attitude towards people who dare ask this question. In her own writing, she says this, quote, I came to see that the way we are taught to define racism makes it virtually impossible for white people to understand it, end quote. But then during the interview with The Guardian, she states this question itself is problematic. And she tells people to ask themselves how they manage to become a functioning adult in 2020, now 2021, and don't know what to do about racism. Here at the Liberty Dad Podcast, I strive to do better than condescension and passive-aggressive maneuvers. Today, I'll discuss five actions that you can take today that will answer the question of what do we do about racism? And you'll even find that with minor adjustments, these five actions are very useful in other areas of conflict. These five actions are ask the right question, define boundaries, remain approachable, be open, and expect likewise from others. So let's start with the first one. Ask the right question. Well, what do we do about racism 
is the wrong question to ask. First, it asks what we can do, not what I can do. You have no more control over my actions than I do yours. That doesn't mean that we cannot influence each other, nor does it mean we cannot maintain expectations, as we'll see in a moment. By changing the question, we shift from thinking on a more social scale to a more individual scale. The question of what we do about racism leaves the answer to racism, it leaves the answer at the mercy of many people engaging at the, uh, in the same behavior at the same time. If you think about any time that you've heard of people promoting the ideas of white fragility or white privilege, it's a constant battle that requires white people as a whole to accept these ideas and then act accordingly. The question of what can I do about racism brings it back to the individual and empowers them to act on it and adjust as necessary to the environment around them. Consider this thought experiment. There are 328 million Americans in the United States. How many do you suppose are racist? And how many do you suppose are not racist, but maybe have some bad ideas about race? Now, I want you to ask yourself the same two questions, but instead of including the entire U.S., limit it to people that you personally know. Unless the circle of your associations is an accurate representation of who the 328 million Americans are, it is unlikely that you will give similar answers to the questions that I just asked you, much less be accurate. Which means by you are far better off acting within your own associations and then adjusting accordingly with those whom you interact. Once we ask the right question, we can then move on to the second item, and that's define boundaries. Defining or setting boundaries is about making clear under what circumstances you will engage with another. It's not about controlling their behavior. You know, I once knew a woman who had expressed her boundaries for an intimate relationship with her boyfriend by saying this, <clears throat> if you're sleeping with other women, you aren't sleeping with me. <laughs> now, that's much different than trying to control him and tell him who he was or was not permitted to sleep with. She only indicated that he wouldn't be sleeping with her if certain conditions were present. That is, if he were sleeping with other people. But unlike an intimate relationship with a significant other, taking active steps to improve race relations has less of an impact when we don't keep the boundaries as broad as possible. It's actually kind of become very popular for people to tell others something like, if you have, a big, uh, if you have bigoted or racist friends, you should get rid of them. Well, I don't find that productive because if you remove yourself from them, you remove yourself from that person's sphere of influence. And um, you might look at it also from another angle that by getting rid of that person, you ensure that there's one less person, one less good person to influence them. Now, there are definitely times when cutting people off is definitely the best decision, an appropriate one. But purely based on the status of being bigoted or racist is simply not enough. Boundaries will differ from person to person. For some, like Daryl Davis, a black jazz musician, his boundaries are extremely wide as he has befriended many KKK members over the years. And in many cases, those friendships have resulted in them renouncing their clan association. 
for others, it may be limited to, say, family members or even a single person. If each individual is to play their part in improving race relations, the goal should simply be to find a tolerable boundary where you can still operate effectively and one that leaves room, this is important, for others to grow from your influence. Getting rid of people does not accomplish this. Now, once you've established the broadest boundary that you can tolerate and remain effective within, you are ready to go on to the next step, which is remain approachable. Have you ever asked a question in earnest and the person responding just kind of snapped at you or maybe made fun of you? Or maybe you've asked a question online and somebody responded with that graphic that shows exactly how you would Google that question, right? That happens a lot. These sorts of responses send a very clear message to others. Be careful what you ask. And often, because it's very unclear what is permitted to be asked, people will overdo it and limit the questions in the future, even reasonable ones. The same applies here in this case. Imagine that I allow myself to be friended by many people on Facebook, a wide variety, and actually I do. And then if I respond with hostility, every time I see something that is what I define as bigoted, the most clear message that I'm sending is, I will excoriate you if you say something that I don't like. The same goes for passive aggressive responses and even what about comments or what aboutism. Have you ever seen someone respond with this? This comment tells me everything I need to know about this person. Let me give you a pro tip. No, it doesn't. It tells you everything you want to know about that person, but it doesn't tell you everything that is useful to know. In my discussion with Josh Fields from the Libertarian Apothecary last week, I mentioned the movie American History X. It's a bit of an old movie, and if you've never seen it, it's about an older brother whose name is Derek Vineyard, and he learns the damage that his hate has brought on his own life and where it's going to take his younger brother Danny if he doesn't intervene. After he finishes a prison sentence for shooting a black man, Derek learns that Danny is following in his footsteps in the white supremacist movement. Our first assumption about Derek is that he just hates people of color and it's hard to have any empathy for him. Sometime during the movie though, we learn that prior to his white supremacist involvement, Derek and Danny had a father who was a firefighter, and he was out doing his thing as a firefighter and was shot attempting to put out a fire at the home of a black American drug dealer. The point is, just hearing Derek's rhetoric does not tell us everything that we need to know about him because it tells us nothing about what got him to that particular point. Responding with hostility, passive aggressiveness, whataboutism, or various other uh, responses sends the message for that person not to open up. If you don't know someone's story, you really can't speak to it. And if you cannot speak to their story, influencing them for the better becomes an insurmountable task. Once we set ourselves as being approachable, we must then move on to the next step, and that is to be open. In episodes 36 or 37, for those who enjoy a discussion-style format, I discuss lessons that we might learn from a former FBI hostage negotiator. In his book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, Chris Voss, the author, says this, quote, 
negotiation serves two distinct vital life functions, information gathering and behavior influencing, and includes almost any interaction where each party wants something from the other side. Negotiation, as you'll learn here, is nothing more than communicating with results." End quote. In those episodes, I identify six ways to communicate with results. They are prepare, open, discover, others, slow, and smile. I encourage you to go back and listen for a little bit more context. Even read the book. If I summarize these six ways in three sentences, it will sound a little something like this. Prepare to learn something new while remaining open to what you think you already know. Seek to discover as much as you can about the other person by focusing on what they have to say. All the while, slow down and don't forget to smile. People can usually tell right away if you're open to hearing them. That doesn't mean that you have to like the ideas, agree with them, or even think they have an ounce of merit. Because when you listen, you are not listening to be convinced, necessarily but to learn about what got the person to this point. That information, not the idea itself, is often more valuable when seeking to influence another person. Once you make it to this point, then you can move on to the final step, which is to expect likewise from others. Influencing isn't just about convincing all the neo-Nazis to give up the views that we find extremely detestable. It's about holding the same standards for everyone we meet. I've run into people who have outright told me that my unwillingness to automatically disassociate from people who are bigots merely on the grounds that they are bigots makes me suspect of being a bigot myself. I patently reject that notion. By holding these same expectations and utilizing them myself, I position myself to treat everyone else equal as possible even when I lack a lot of information, and more importantly, push them in the same direction. I set the expectation that a person bigoted against those from another race and the person who dislikes the bigot should, be, should equally ask the right question, define boundaries, remain approachable, be open, and expect likewise from others. Because when you really think about it, the bigoted person is failing to do any in the first place. The difference is they're doing so in a different context and it took them to a different place than say you or I. Now if that's not convincing, let me present to you a different thought. If you remove bigoted people from your life rather than engage, you aren't solving the problem in any way. You're simply asking somebody else to deal with it better to, to set the standard for influence, live it, and then have the standard of expectation. Was that what you thought it was going to be? Maybe you were expecting something more like, people of color should do this, and white people should do this. Unfortunately, that's what much of the advice out there says. White fragility as a concept asks white people to do things that it does not ask black people to do. It keeps us separated by black and white, rather than recognize that we're a variety of individuals all trying to live together. This approach treats us all as equal, makes the same request of all of us, and most importantly, 
recognizes that many of our behaviors are really shared regardless of race or ethnicity, or even age, gender, sex, education, or any other factor that we use to separate ourselves demographically. When we treat each other as human beings with similar fallibility and recognize these failings vary between us in different contexts, it allows us to maximize our influence with each other, no matter our specific circumstances. In other words, both the racist and the person who opposes the racist have the same expectation to hear one another. The same applies no matter who the two people are, because what we're doing here is creating a framework for everyone to operate under that does not first require determining whose idea is valid and whose is not. At the end of his TED talk titled, Why I as a Black Man Attend KKK Rallies, Daryl Davis has this to say, quote, take the time to sit down and talk with your adversaries. You will learn something from them and they will learn something from you. When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting, they're talking. And it's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. I hope you enjoyed the topic this week and it gives you something a little bit to think about. Feel free to check out other episodes so that you can get the fullest context of my thoughts on race-related matters. If you watch them all, I hope that my message was blatantly obvious, and that is, the divide between race is not a race problem at all. It's a human problem that happens to function in the domain of race. Recognizing that is the first step in improving race relations, regardless how you identify racially or ethnically. And now, let's have a bill review. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today, I am still just a bill. Hi, and welcome back. The goal of the bill review is to promote the idea that everyday Americans can and should take the time to read any legislation, order, or mandate. Since I'm not a lawyer, this isn't a legal interpretation, and I may be wrong. Bills range from a page or two to many thousands of pages long. And since they can be rather dry, this segment is short and only meant to show you just how much you can learn in only a few minutes. We're continuing on with the theme of Black History Month. So I'm focusing on bills that are in some way related to the black community. In this episode, I review H.R. 133, which is also known as David's Law. David's Law is only seven pages long, so it's not terribly a long read. It's described as a bill, quote, to enhance federal enforcement of hate crimes and for other purposes, end quote. Now, what's so bad about that, you ask? I mean, hate crimes are pretty vile, right? And who would ever support anything other than making it a crime or making it a serious crime? As always on this show, we want to look at the purpose, the action taken, and how it will be measured. The first thing that we need to do is define what is a hate crime. In section three of this bill, it says, quote, in this act, the term hate crime has the same meaning as in section 280003A of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. Looking there, we find this definition. Hate crime means a crime in which the defendant intentionally selects a victim, or in the case of a property crime, the property that is the object of the crime becomes uh, because of the actual or perceived race, color, religion, national origin, 
ethnicity, gender, disability, or sexual orientation of any person. Two things this bill operates on an existing definition of hate crime and it seeks to enhance federal enforcements of one. Now, next, I was kind of curious about the bill's name. Who is David and why is there legislation named after him? On the night of April 22, 2006, two white teenagers beat, tortured, and sexually assaulted David Richardson, a fellow Latino student. The details of the attack are really horrific and vile, and I will not divulge them here. If you're watching on YouTube, I will post a link to the Wikipedia entry. David ended up surviving the attack, but he did end up on a ventilator and required over 12 surgeries and three months in the hospital. He testified before Congress and appeared to be recovering mentally. However, unfortunately, a year later, he committed suicide by jumping from a cruise ship. Being a layperson and then also reviewing the incident for which this bill derives its name makes it a bit difficult to identify exactly what would have been different had it been in place at the time of the vicious attack on David. The text of this bill seeks to add the following to the U.S. The US code, which are the federal laws. Quote, whoever, whether or not acting under color of law in any circumstance described in subparagraph B willfully causes bodily injury to any person or through the use of a fire or firearm or an explosive device attempts to cause bodily injury to any person because of the actual or perceived religion, gender, sexual orientation, or disability of any person. And then it goes on to state that the person will be jailed for up to, but not exceeding, 10 years, fined, or both. Or they'll be imprisoned for a term of years, or for life, or fined, or both, if the actions result in death. However, when you go and review the results of the David Richardson case, his two attackers, were, one was 17 and one 18, were sentenced to 90 years in prison and uh, life for the other, respectively. Both are eligible for parole in 2036, where they will be 47 and 48 years old. The older attacker has a tentative release date of 2096, at which time he would be 108 years old. Reading the details of the attack, um, parole after 30 years, it feels a bit too lenient. The challenge here is to determine how the sentencing for such a crime is impacted. I haven't read the 94 crime bill, but it would seem that it simply doesn't have the minimum sentencing mandate. Another interesting point about this bill is that it mentions the Interstate Commerce Clause seven times. If you're unfamiliar with the Commerce Clause, it's a single sentence in the Constitution of the United States that has a very long history of political controversy in this country. Basically, and briefly, it defines the balance of power between the federal government and individual states by giving the federal government authority over areas where commerce crosses state lines. There's a little more to it than that. I'm inclined to oppose this bill because it reads to me as giving more authority to the federal government when it's not really best suited for that purpose. While hate crimes are vile and the attack on this man whose name titles the bill was absolutely despicable, we must always be careful when proposing laws that expand the federal government's reach. Remember, our country was born under the explicit delineation of federal and state powers. And the debate over what kind of authority the federal government should have has been hotly contested since the beginning.
Moreover, I'm not a big fan of criminalizing hatred because it rides too close to the idea of a thought crime. But more importantly, there is a heavy debate in this country right now about what it means to be a racist, a bigot, or some other nasty word. So long as society has uh, not landed on a firm, understood, and well-accepted definition, I think it's dangerous to criminalize crimes in connection with them, particularly at the federal level, where if we decide later that they aren't actually a good bill or a good law, that is, then they're harder to undo. Now, you may feel different, and that's okay. The goal of the bill review is to get people reading and then talking, or maybe debating. We cannot have the conversation if we're not making good faith attempts to be well informed. And without that conversation, well, we risk accepting the solution of those whose voice is the loudest, and that's regardless of the merit of their view. That's all for this episode. To see the videos for this episode and others, head over to youtube.libertydad.com. Be sure to connect with me at Liberty Dad on Facebook, Liberty Dad Pod on Twitter, or send me an email to libertydadpodcast at gmail.com. You're a champion of liberty, your business is people, and your product is liberty.